0: Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing our reading of what is Marxism all about. This week's chapter is touch on how capitalism oppresses based on gender, race, and sexuality, and how Marxism is positioned to oppose that. So let's get started straight away on part two of our reading. Chapter 8. Women's Oppression The oppression of women in the 21st century is perhaps more multifaceted and developed than it has been historically. Gains in women's rights have been products of the protracted struggle of women and anti-sexist allies over the centuries. But these gains have not ended the oppression of women. On average, women make about 30% less than what men make for the same job, hours, and skill level. Women of color make even less on average than white women. This evident economic discrimination is just one part of the systemic oppression of women. For centuries, the labour of women has been devalued and exploited through lesser or no wages, unsafe and unregulated working conditions, the non-payment for extensive and valuable domestic work, and being forced to give all wages to one's father or male spouse. The glass ceiling, limits placed on the upward mobility of women in the workforce, traps women in low-wage industries. Since women are paid less than men but take up the bulk of the domestic work in the home, women are oftentimes trapped into economic dependence on men or are forced to rely on a sexist system for economic help. This assistance is very underfunded and does little to aid women in economic need. In some instances, women are forced to enter into sex work, an extra-legal system of sexual and economic exploitation. Currently, women make up the bulk of the poor, and are most affected by economic crises. This is the feminization of poverty. Women's oppression is evident in the political arena as well. Capitalist politics have historically disenfranchised women by allowing only men to vote and hold public office. The women's suffrage movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries obtained the right to vote for women but women's roles in politics are often still limited to the appearance-making spouse of a political candidate. Even women who have had some level of success entering the political arena have had to adhere to the rules and expectations of a male-dominated political system. Women are still vastly outnumbered on the Supreme Court and in the U.S. Congress, which for more than 85 years has failed to pass a simple equal rights amendment. The oppression of women is based on the historical status of women as private property and their unequal relationship to men in the institution of family. Legislation upholding the status of women as property still exists today. These laws limit the self-determination of women by placing boundaries on their sexualities and their bodies. Though some reproductive rights, like abortion and birth control, are legal for most women in the U.S., The right to abortion and birth control are still legally and extra-legally restricted to many women, and oftentimes these rights are out of the economic reach of working and poor women. These rights, which were fought for by generations of women and allies, are now under attack. Many states are successfully passing legislation to severely restrict abortion and other methods of birth control. It is hard to see how, in this system, women could ever obtain true reproductive justice, meaning not just the right to choose to reproduce, but the right to bear children into a society that will ensure that child is well-fed, clothed, sheltered, and educated. When discussing women's oppression, it is easy for people to ignore the social and cultural manifestations of women's oppression. The cultural manifestations include the sexual degradation and overall sexualization of women in popular culture, the association of women with products that can be bought and sold, the normalization of abusive behavior towards women and the classification of women as intellectually and physically inferior and submissive to men. These aspects of women's cultural oppression are reinforced through popular television programs and commercials, popular music and music videos, pornography, magazines and other forms of advertisement. Women are stereotyped in the media as sexual objects that men can obtain through monetary or material exchange. These images of women, which are by far the most prevalent images of women in all popular forms of entertainment and advertising, encourage men to mimic these sexist views in their social interactions with women. Women are also encouraged to fit into these stereotypes and discouraged from taking active and independent roles in defining their sexualities, body image, and social interactions. One may ask, when faced with the historical and current oppression of women, was it always like this? The answer is no. Though women have been oppressed and exploited for centuries, this sexist hierarchy was not always the case. During the majority of human history, women were not oppressed. In fact, in the old communal societies, women were equal to men. In some instances, matriarchal societies existed. It is important to note that in these societies, men were not oppressed by women, but women held a certain social and cultural importance to the family and community, that was not based on the exploitation or oppression of men. While the division of labor, social roles that men and women fulfilled, was different, there was no system of inferiority or superiority based on the division of labor. Not until the emergence of private property, and therefore class society, did the oppression of women emerge. Since then, women have been oppressed in all forms of class society, including slavery, feudalism, and capitalism. It is easy to conclude that women's oppression is historically based in class oppression and is currently perpetuated by class society. Marxists argue that the absence of women's oppression in pre private property societies proves that women's oppression is based on the system of private property and not a natural outgrowth of male dominance over women. Consequently, the abolition of private property will lay the basis for the complete liberation of women. Chapter 9 RACISM AND OPPRESSED NATIONS In an open colonial relationship, it is easy to recognize an oppressed nation. The Irish people, for example, have been oppressed by England for centuries and during most of that time denied the rights of nationhood. Generally, oppressed nations have consisted of people sharing a common language, territory and culture, and a common expression. In Puerto Rico, for example, not only do the first three characteristics apply, but the Puerto Rican independence movement has waged a brave liberation struggle in Puerto Rico and within the United States itself against U.S. occupation of the island. Imperialism, however, has complicated the definition of an oppressed nation by moving whole peoples from their original geographic locations and breaking down language and cultural differences. In the U.S., there are still oppressed nations who are systematically singled out for oppression, regardless of where they live, because of their ethnic and historical backgrounds. Thus, we say that the U.S. today is multinational, with a dominant white nation alongside and intermingled with a number of oppressed national groupings, including the Black, Latin, Asian and Pacific Islander, and Native nations. The working class, too, is multinational. At the factories and in the shops, workers of different nations work side by side but the entire working class is exploited by the same capitalist class, the bankers, the big farmers or agribusinesses, the industrialists, and the landlords. And this capitalist class belongs primarily to the upper strata of the dominant white nation. How did it come to be this way? Why did people coming to the US from different European nations in the early days become assimilated, while those who originally inhabited this continent, those forcibly brought from Africa, and others have remained oppressed. The European immigrants to North America, while some were rich and some poor, were gradually assimilated, their national differences, though not necessarily their class differences, breaking down to where they now constitute a nation in themselves. The majority of them chose to come to the US because of economic and political conditions in their own countries. But as U.S. capitalism developed and the 13 colonies won their independence, the U.S. forcibly conquered other nations and nationalities and took them over through military expansionist wars. The native nations, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and Aztlan, the southwest area of the U.S. that was stolen from Mexico, are a few examples. In addition, entire peoples were uprooted from their African homelands and kidnapped to the U.S. through the slave trade. The U.S., as the world's biggest superpower, has also forced economic policies onto so-called developing countries that have had a devastating impact on the people of those countries. As a result, many workers migrate to the U.S. in search of job opportunities. These national groupings of immigrants are then forced into the lowest-paying, super-exploitative jobs in the U.S. and live in fear of workplace raids, detention, and deportation. All these different oppressed nations and nationalities have been retained within the boundaries of the U.S., their land stolen and plundered of natural resources, their people used as a source of cheap labor. Because of slavery and imperialist intervention, they were prevented from developing as independent nations, nor have they received the protection of the democratic rights supposedly granted by the U.S. Constitution. In reality, these people are internal colonies of the U.S. ruling class. The capitalist ruling class has deliberately fostered divisions between white workers and oppressed peoples. This divide and conquer tactic means denying oppressed people their democratic rights, miseducating white workers, and attempting to indoctrinate them with racist ideas, blaming non whites for the evils of capitalism, giving white workers a few extra crumbs while still exploiting their labor intensively, and creating a system of racism and national oppression based on super exploitation. Inequality, and Prejudice. Chapter 10. LGBTQ Oppression Until recent times, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, and queer people were a mostly invisible minority. Very prejudicial and distorted ideas of what they were like were held by many people. Those who knew the truth, that queer people were pretty much like straight people except for the added oppression they suffered because of their sexuality, had the choice of remaining silent or becoming victims of the prejudice themselves. When queer people, the majority people of color, fought back against police harassment in New York City in June 1969, it was a signal to queer people everywhere that the time had come to challenge the historic legacy of oppression. This momentous event, the Stonewall Rebellion, is commemorated every year by thousands of queer people with marches and rallies in many cities. Queer people in large numbers continue fighting for an end to the discrimination they face in all areas of their lives. Queer people are discriminated against by bosses and landlords, they face brutality and are physically attacked by bigots who know the cops and courts will almost always side in their favor. The struggle continues for the right of queer people to marry, not because marriage is some sacred institution, but to receive the hundreds of economic benefits given to married couples. Queer youth are harassed at school and sometimes face homelessness after being kicked out of their homes. Queer people are also fighting erroneous ideas about them that are still widely held. For example, it is said that queer identity is rare, that it only exists in big cities, or in capitalist societies, or in families that are abnormal in one way or another. All these assertions are contradicted by facts that show that many people have homosexual feelings to one extent or another and that queer people have existed in all societies, at all times, whether persecuted or not, and regardless of how a particular society was organized. Through most of human existence, the patriarchal family as we know it today did not exist. All progressive people should speak out for the rights of queer people. In addition, we should understand how the capitalists make use of the widespread prejudice against queer people to hurt all working and oppressed people. It is one more way to divide us, to keep us fighting among ourselves, instead of uniting to defeat our common enemy, the capitalists who exploit queer and straight alike. Chapter 11. Self-Determination All workers, regardless of national background, have the same class interests. They all need to eliminate capitalist exploitation and replace the rule of the bosses with the rule of the workers. Socialism. It is clear that this tremendous task can't be achieved without the closest possible unity and trust among all workers. But when one or several sections of the working class are oppressed over and above the class as a whole, when in fact they belong to a people who constitute an oppressed nation, then the problems of unity are complicated. Racism and national oppression are tools of the bosses. They divide the workers by making the more privileged group feel it is in their interest to go along with the terrible conditions imposed on the oppressed. The result is that all workers suffer, but the oppressed groups suffer by far the most. The kind of solidarity that is needed to fight the bosses in the days ahead can only be built up through a struggle to break down the racism and inequality dividing the workers. The white workers must show by their actions that they will fight to extend to the oppressed people all the rights and benefits that they already have. But national oppression is not confined to the workplace. It is not expressed merely in lower wages and worse jobs. An oppressed nation is subject to humiliation deprivation, scorn, and repression in every area of social life. Therefore, much of their struggle is a political one to achieve democratic rights denied them. Beginning with Karl Marx, communists or revolutionary socialists have always supported the right of oppressed nations to self-determination, at the same time that they endeavor to unite the workers of all nationalities into a common fighting party of the working class. Supporting the right of self-determination means supporting the oppressed people, In whatever choice they may make about the type of political form that best suits their historical circumstances. This could be a federation of their national states with others. They might choose to form an autonomous region. They might feel that assimilation into the dominant nation with full equality can best serve their interests. Or they might want to establish a separate independent state of their own. In the US today, only the dominant white nation has a state of its own, and this is run by the billionaires. But the black, native, latin, and other oppressed nations don't have any type of state of their own, let alone a state run by the workers. They are systematically denied political power at all levels. For white workers to understand the right of self-determination doesn't mean that they should advocate separation any more than it means that they should abandon the struggle to win over and change the view of backward whites who want to exclude blacks and other oppressed peoples from their schools, neighborhoods, etc. It is by supporting both the right of self-determination and the struggle for equality that white workers can help break down the racism that has divided our class and bring closer the day when all workers can cooperate in the struggle to tear down capitalist exploitation and oppression. Chapter 12 Culture Dictionary.com defines culture as the behaviors and belief characteristic of a particular social, ethnic, or age group. This definition is not necessarily incorrect, but it is wholly inadequate. Culture is all-encompassing. It is part of the superstructure. The thoughts, ideas, actions, language, arts, every human endeavor or expression is connected to a society's culture. It is not something static, but evolves and is intimately bound to the real and material world. But where do these behaviors and beliefs come from? The great revolutionary theorist from Guinea Bissau, Emil Carr Cabral, wrote Culture, whatever the ideological or idealist characteristics of its expression, is an essential element of the history of a people. Culture is, perhaps, the resultant of this history, just as the flower is the resultant of a plant. Like history, or because it is history, culture has at its material base the level of the productive forces and the mode of production. Just as everything in nature goes through constant change, the thoughts and actions of human beings change to reflect the constantly changing world, and how human beings interact with that reality. Society is organized by that interaction, the manipulation of nature for subsistence. Karl Marx asserted, by producing their means of subsistence, men are indirectly producing their actual material life. Not every society developed at the same pace, nor went through exactly the same stages in the same way, but how the needs of society are met, and the relation of the producers of the needs to the things produced, is indeed what society is organized around. And, since it is from production that human nature is derived, it too is not a static thing. When Marx said capital came into the world, dripping from head to toe, from every pore, with blood and dirt... He was speaking of the natural proclivity of the system. Private property, from which capitalism sprung, brought with it the subjugation of women, children, gender expression and sexual identity, necessary for the patriarchal system to perpetuate the bequeathing of capital. The particular history of building up the productive forces of the US, that is to say, the history of slavery, genocide and theft of land, has left an indelible blemish on the conscience and consciousness of the society, and the people of the society. The US capitalist society built its foundation off the super-exploitation of Africans who were brought as slaves, the stealing of land from indigenous and Mexican people, and the genocide of indigenous peoples. It was the belief of the supremacy of European or white people that led so many to accept the barbaric practice of accumulating capital. Forty years ago, many whites did not want to swim in the same pool with blacks, and many didn't want their children to attend the same schools as black children. There are many that still hold these racist views, but what changed to allow such strides as desegregation and other civil rights gains? It was struggle that changed the equation. When oppressed people and working people struggle against conditions opposed upon them, it affects consciousness as a whole. Old prejudices crumble and people become socialized to see past, backwards ways of thinking. Here in the US, culture is often thought of as artistic output. While artistic output is only one aspect of culture, examining the arts, in this case music, is extremely useful to describe the peculiarities of US society. Jazz musician Miles Davis said of music, Music is always changing. It changes because of the times and the technology that's available. Music is an important part of most people's lives. Everywhere you go, there is music. In the US, the music that is most pervasive is that of the oppressed. The music of indigenous people, of the peoples of Latin America, and especially of black people and of the African diaspora, is predominant. It reflects the struggles of the people. It too, though, is not free from the overarching culture of the capitalist system. While it speaks of the history of the oppressed, expressing their struggles and beliefs from earlier times, it suffers from the ideals that come with capitalist society, just as in earlier times it reflected the ideals that come with the modes of production, productive capabilities, and social relations of those earlier societies. Oppressed culture is always under attack, and faces a great deal of scrutiny from capitalist media and the society as a whole. Hip-hop music is made the scapegoat for the sexism, racism, and homophobia rampant in the U.S. Whatever contradictions exist in rap music, or any of the other elements of hip-hop, the culture is neither the greatest purveyor of the contradictions nor the initiator. It is merely subject to infiltration from the culture that comes with capitalist society. Hip-hop began not just as party music, but as social commentary. What was then known as a counterculture? partly because hip-hop in its early days was underground, was a response to the conditions imposed upon black and Puerto Rican youth in New York and across the country in inner city areas in the late 1970s and 1980s. These conditions included white flight from city areas, the beginning of de-industrialization, and the decline of the great social movements of the 1960s and 1970s as a result of the boom-and-bust cycle of capitalism. If the perpetuation of capital requires greater and greater exploitation, especially of oppressed nationalities, then it is natural for countercultures of the exploited, the oppressed and workers, in bourgeois or capitalist society, to exist. The wellspring, in this period, of the countercultures shows the desire for freedom from exploitation. The artistic expression of pop or mass culture can be a gauge of the willingness of the masses to struggle expressions of the conditions the masses are faced with, or both at the same time. The same goes for the culture of the oppressed, those workers who face added discrimination, repression and hardship because of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, so-called legal status, and or disability. However, the culture of the oppressed not only faces infiltration from the ideals of the ruling class, but also from the dominant layer of society. In the US, that layer is white. Because of the history of genocide, land theft, and slavery, part of the primitive accumulation of capital, denoted by Marx, race is always a factor. The historical development of the US and the world has deemed that the lens of race is always firmly fitted. When capitalism is abolished from the earth, new ideas and beliefs will come, and human nature will evolve to reflect the changed social relations and the changing material life. Chapter 13 how the state arose when marxists speak of the state it is not in the sense that many in the u.s are accustomed to it is not in reference to for instance the state of new york ohio or california what is meant is the repressive apparatus of the government some may even confuse the government with the state but the state is wielded by the government which is part of the superstructure of capitalist or bourgeois society which is part of the superstructure of capitalist or bourgeois society. The superstructure of capitalist society is born of the objective conditions of a society, based on profit derived from exploitation and from the social relations of such society. The state, simply as the repressive apparatus of the government, the courts, the prisons, the police, and the military, stands to maintain the social relations as they are, to protect the owning and possessing few from the exploited and oppressed masses. Has the state always existed? This question can be partly answered by posing another. Have there always been classes? Examining history through the science of materialism is required to see the basis for the need of the state. Human beings have existed on the earth for hundreds of thousands of years, but the organization of human societies under the rule of the state is only maybe 6,000 years or so. If one were to measure history by a yardstick, then the period of history where the state has existed would account for less than an inch. For hundreds of thousands of years, human beings lived in societies that had no state. No cops, no jails, no armies. Disputes were handled through social mediation and pressure. What conditions then produced the state? How did the state arise from the older, stateless societies? The state first came into existence around 4000 BC, before that, societies existed communally, sharing as necessary because of scarcity. As production capability began to change, a surplus beyond what was necessary to survive from one day to the next was produced. The surplus was hoarded and made the private property of a few, while the majority had no property. From this came the split of humanity into classes, the propertyed, and those who possessed no property, an apparatus, the state grew from antagonisms between the propertied and the non-propertied. The state existed then in its earlier forms as it does now, especially trained and armed people who protect the interests of the few owners of wealth from the great majority who are impoverished. It is from these early conditions that ancient slave society emerged, where human beings became property of the wealthy. The Roman Empire was a slave society. More than 50% of the society was enslaved. To maintain this reality, the Romans needed a vast army of thousands of soldiers whose primary tasks were to protect the status quo, put down slave rebellions and conquer more territory. While the Roman Empire collapsed, it was eventually replaced by another form of the state, in the feudal state. Serfs toiled on land owned by feudal lords. Wealth was derived from serfs paying the great majority of what they had produced to the feudal lords keeping only a meagre portion with which they could barely sustain themselves and their families. The armies of feudal society were kept and paid by the lords, who used them to suppress the serfs. The capitalist class arose in opposition to the landed aristocracy. This early capitalist class was composed of merchants and shopkeepers, eager to produce more wealth through commerce and trade. In bloody civil wars, in one country after the other, They overthrew the old ruling powers to set up a state to serve their needs, where the old state formation could not. The capitalist states that arose in Europe and later in the US used vast armies to subdue the people of Asia, Africa, and the Americas in order to exploit them and their natural resources. Most people around the world had lived in societies with earlier formations of the state, or where there existed no state at all, such as many of the peoples of North America and the Caribbean. The imperialist nations of Europe and the US have developed the state to huge proportions, building vast armies with enormous budgets and high-tech weaponry that can destroy whole cities. The state and its reason for existence is more apparent as more and more oppressed and exploited people in the US and around the world fight back against the conditions imposed upon them. Chapter 14. The State Today. The previous chapter traced the evolution of the state, the army, courts, cops, prisons, and tax collectors from its formation 6,000 years ago. The state has consistently served the privileged classes, first slave owners, then feudal lords, and, today, the capitalists. The US has developed one of the most extensive and brutal states in human history. This state appropriates the meager earnings of the working class to finance its huge armies of war and occupation, as well as killer unmanned drone bombers which it deploys at will to countries such as Pakistan, Yemen, Libya, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and to fund the police state and prison system, which presently imprisons well over 2 million people, half of whom are people of color. Hundreds of billions more are spent on the courts that administer this injustice, as well as domestic and international surveillance activities operated through the FBI and the CIA. This vast apparatus is necessary to serve and protect the power of the minority of billionaires who rule this country from the corporate boardrooms to the halls of Congress. The character of the state as a tool of the bosses is reaffirmed every time striking workers are jailed by the courts. It is reaffirmed every time a young unarmed black man dies at the hands of a racist police officer. Every time a country is shocked and awed into submission. This character is displayed for the world to see. The state has become almost completely merged with the capitalist class itself, creating a virtual shuttle service from boardrooms to government office and providing a conduit of limitless funds from the government coffers to the bank accounts of finance and industry executives. How else can you explain the connections between former President George W. Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney to the oil and energy industry? Why else would President Barack Obama name Timothy Gethner as Treasury Secretary? and have him funnel trillions of dollars to the banks on Wall Street in the name of fiscal stimulus. The ruthlessness of the capitalist state has been revealed many times in recent years. In Iraq and Afghanistan, where imperialist bombs and gunfire have killed countless children. In New Orleans and the Mississippi Delta, where the black survivors of Hurricane Katrina faced an assault on their livelihoods by the same government that failed to protect them from the disaster and in Oakland, California, where Oscar Grant, an unarmed young black man, was shot dead by police as he lay handcuffed and face down on the platform of a train station. The Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 demonstrated the capacity for the existence of a new kind of state, a workers' state. This revolution abolished capitalism in Russia, just as slavery and serfdom had been overthrown before. All wealth, except personal property, was made the common property of all workers, The economy was planned to meet human needs, not the profits of the few. The Soviet state existed in the historic interests of the entire world's working class and oppressed. Despite its deficiencies and its eventual defeat in 1991, the Soviet state was an inspiration for socialist revolutions in China, Cuba, Vietnam, and other countries around the globe. Even today, after many of these countries have experienced counter-revolutions or have turned toward the market, Millions around the world are fighting and dying for the establishment of a new state of this kind. Workers and the poor in countries as varied as Colombia, Venezuela, Nepal, India, and the Philippines struggle daily for a worker state, like the one Cubans have been building for 50 years. As the economic crisis in the US escalates more and more, workers at home will start to demand a new state as well. The state has always been an instrument of dictatorship. Of the slave owner over the slave, the feudal lord over the serf, The capitalist over the workers and oppressed. The worker state maximizes democracy for the working class as it exercises a dictatorship over the remnants of the former capitalist ruling class. The growth of socialism holds the promise of abolishing all class antagonisms. The overthrow of capitalism worldwide will set the stage for the gradual disappearance of the state as the world currently knows it. It will provide the conditions for the world's wealth, produced in abundance by modern technology, to be shared in common capitalism's demise will unlock the potential for humans to live in a modern, peaceful society, without any need for the old state's instruments of suppression. That concludes our second reading from What is Marxism All About? We'll be finishing this book up next week. I haven't yet decided on what to follow this one up with, so if you have suggestions, as well as any questions, comments, or corrections, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com, or contact the show on Twitter, at LeftistReading. This podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Check out abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts there about movies, books, video games, and anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and keep reading.